0: This is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Outdoors in partnership with Warriors Quest is brought to you by Martin Archery, the number one archery company. Martin Archery combines leading-edge modern technology with innovative design to give serious bow hunters and target archers what they demand. Axis Camera Arms. For a camera arm that offers a smooth, full range of motion without restriction, lightweight, easy to pack, the name speaks for itself, the Axis Revolution. Conquest Sense. For more than 15 years, Conquest Sense has been selling premium hunting scents to hunters around the country. Bojax Ink, the best design archery dampening system. Simmons Optics, everything you need, nothing you don't. Ozonics, undetectable, undeniable. Dry-shod waterproof footwear, the most wearable rubber boot. Veteran Innovative Products VIP Broadheads, the first and only scalpel-sharp broadhead with dual-spring variable cutting width suspension for superior penetration. Elevated Safety Systems, Rancho Rio Lindo in Uvalde, Texas. Piney Woods Hunting Lodge in Eufaula, Alabama. So this week we're joined by Tyke and Scott again uh, as they've come back from their backcountry rifle hunt in Northern California. Uh, We're going to cover how the trip went and the lessons they learned along the way. So just give us a brief summary of how your trip went, maybe some highlights of... Success, non-success. What you saw, what you left with.
1: Well, we saw a lot of does. Uh, we can't shoot them in California, but we did. I think we saw what well, probably—I don't know—fifteen to twenty does or something like that. Maybe you think, Scott? Uh, most of them, I think, were the same same ones. Just you know,
2: day in and day out, though. Yeah, that that sounds about right to me. Um, I had a lot of fawns. With those does that we got to see, uh,
3: the animals there were uh, seemingly not very uh, skittish towards us, and so uh,
2: they, they didn't really leave the area as we would jump them up and, and move through them. But well, was quite a few animals in there, just not what we were looking for.
0: Do you ever, do you guys ever wish that? You had a way to mark deer you've already seen, so you know if you're not, so you know you're not seeing the same deer over and over again. Um,
1: I, it's, it's not anything I've really thought about. I mean, I guess sometimes it was kind of, it was kind of one. Uh, I kind of was wondering where we saw. I know we saw one doe that had two fawns with her, and I'm pretty sure every time we went on a walk, we saw that group of deer. Yeah, they were generally in the same area. And so I'm pretty sure we saw them almost every time we walked out. And they, they just hung out there, and they would just watch us walk by and kind of really paid us no mind.
0: And I kind of get that I get that feeling a lot when I'm looking at a new area where I've set out trail cameras and stuff like that, and then I go back and I check pictures from that, and I see all these deer, these does, and I'm like, man, there's a lot of deer here. And then I go and sit, and I don't see anything. And then I start thinking, I'm like, is there a lot of deer, or is there five deer that keeps showing up all the time and they just didn't show up today? You just have one deer that walks back and forth in front of the camel. Right.
3: It's, it's stuck down. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's
1: just walking circles around the tree. Yeah. Just they're like fooling me. Picture taken.
0: Yeah, they're fooling me is what they're doing.
2: <laughs> you know, I did it. I did have a pretty cool experience uh, that, that I've never experienced before. And what happened was is that Tyke and I were pushing a, a timber stand and uh, I took the inside uh, lower track on the on the bridge there and so it gave me a much shorter walk than Tyke had. So I, I beat him to our sort of rendezvous point of quite a bit, quite a bit of time before he got there, and I was standing there, and I had a, a deer that I didn't immediately recognize, whether it was a buck, whether it was a doe, I just saw it kind of uh, walking up and and going through the timber, so I, I take a line, and I, I cut it off, and ended up uh, coming up on the deer and I was about 40 yards away and it kind of had its head behind a tree And so I, I moved around a little bit. and It, it knew I was there ultimately uh, so It was it was looking at me by the time I was looking at it and I moved around and finally got to where I could see that it was a doe But the the, the strange thing about this scenario was this this animals looking at me and kind of tilting her head back and forth not not really doing anything obviously saw me and was staring at me and and i just started i just held still and she kind of uh just stared at me for about five minutes while i was standing there still and then she tried that trick that a lot of deer pull where they pretend to be feeding but they're really looking at you and so they'll bend down and kind of do really nothing but with their head close to the ground while they're staring at you to, to make you think that they're not looking at you. And then they'll pop their head back up and, and check on you. And I just stood there through this
3: and and after about a couple minutes of her doing that, she started working
2: her way into me. It was, it was sort of, to me, looked like she couldn't take not knowing uh, what I was or what I was up to so she she moved in all the way to about ten yards, and then stopped there and looked at me. And I told her I started talking to her and, and asked her where her boyfriend was, and she just kind of almost gave me a disgusted look, and then skirted me in about ten yards at a at a walk, and just walked walked away from me. Uh, so that that was something I've never seen. They usually go the other way, and so that was kind of cool to get her to come act, actually towards me and and come in that tight, knowing that I was there. Yeah, so, you remember you remember that doe on Campbell when we were we were hunting dogs, I think, on
1: Campbell. Remember that doe that walked in right on us and was feet away, probably.
3: Yeah, five,
0: she feet was away from us. She on was practically sitting in your lap.
1: Yeah, yeah, I thought I was gonna sit down i was sniffing my nuts
0: so there's actually a a really cool explanation for why deer do what you're talking about Scott and I don't know if you're aware of why they're doing that but the deer see in two-dimensional they don't have depth perception like we do so when the deer is moving its head up and down like that they're changing the perspective at which they're looking at you trying to figure out what you are so and the, and the way you can use that two-dimensional vision to your advantage is you don't always have to have cover in front of you when you're trying to hide. If, you're, if your silhouette is well broken up by what's directly behind you, and you blend in fairly well with your camouflage, you're still just almost equally as hidden as if you were standing behind it. And I've seen that work in my own setups. I've actually had I've actually set up a few bow stands with that in mind, knowing that what behind what was behind me was very heavily vegetated leaves and stuff like that there was no skylight coming through so Mm -hmm. i used that their two-dimensional vision against them and when deer are actually looking down feeding they can still see up above their head their their field of vision is insanely huge Uh, i mean that goes for most prey animals have a very wide field of view because they are prey and not a predator
3: yeah and
2: eyes on the side of their heads
0: right but deer can not only see up, but when they're when they have their head down, they can still see you even if you're twenty feet up in a tree. They can see you move. Uh, so the only real way to hide that movement is to move when their head is behind something. I see. But. Uh, I forget what university did a study on that, but I read an entire study on the, the way deer see. And it's actually really neat the way they see their color vision. They see ultraviolet light really well. So you got to be careful not only to wash your hunting clothes in a scent-free detergent, but also one that doesn't have UV brighteners in it to brighten to brighten the colors, quote-unquote. Hmm. Because that gives it like a film on your clothing that shines like a reflective, like a reflector to them.
2: I' me darn so you think that she was able to pick up my movement but I had enough uh, cover behind me that she wasn't able to make out my shape well enough to know whether I was a threat or what what exactly I was and so she was just trying to figure that out
0: correct she was trying to change her perspective of the way she was looking at you by moving her head back and forth to get a better idea of what you were standing there or a crouch there wow. whoever you however you were there
2: yeah, I was I was just standing up, but I but looking back, I did move between a couple of trees there where I don't think that there would have been too much silhouette action going on. I think I probably did have pretty good back cover where I was. Um, in addition, I was wearing a backpack, so I I think a lot of times when you're wearing a, a backpack that's that's coming out above your shoulders, it, it breaks up your silhouette somewhat. To where it makes you less identifiable as a human, right? Even though it's just a hump back there, but it it, it doesn't
3: give them that exact human shape
2: when they silhouette you. So I think it, sometimes it helps.
0: And you know something i thought about doing to use that that shape that shape based vision against them again. Me being me being a stand hunter. Uh, hunting out of a tree stand most of the time for white-tailed deer i have contemplated going out and buying plywood and cutting a rough silhouette out of plywood to use as like a backrest in a tree stand that way that all year long all year long the silhouette is there
2: yeah
0: that way they just get used to seeing it i I
2: mean i I really hope to hear how that works out for you
0: i have Uh, yet to invest the money in doing that
2: it makes
0: sense. It does make sense. Doesn't mean I'm going to do it. I've also thought about uh, my neighbor used to have one of those uh, punching bags that looked like a person. We thought about sticking that up in a tree when it got moldy from sitting out in the yard. Never did that either.
2: <laughs> Just to desensitize them, huh? Right. <laughs> right. All right.
0: The idea is there. I mean, it, it would work. It would, in theory, it should, in theory, work.
2: So I, I think I misunderstood your first uh, proposition there. I thought that you were going to put a outline that looked somewhat natural that was wide enough to cover your silhouette from the skyline to to make it so that your movements would be covered by that piece of plywood. But you're actually talking about cutting out a person shape
0: and Just screwing it to the tree. making a Making a backrest for a tree stand. That basically looks like a head and shoulder sticking up above blind material. Uh, so there's yeah, always a head and shoulders there. And they but get.
3: Because
0: that's the first thing I've seen deer key in on is when you're in a tree stand, because they get used to a tree stand being there. It's there all the time, right? It's not like, especially well, on private land, where, where I do a lot of my whitetail deer hunting on our lease in Georgia, the ladder stands and stuff, they're there pretty much year round. So the deer come out. They know the stand is there, and the first thing they do when they step out of the woods is they look at it. And if it, really, yeah, oh, absolutely. See, if, we
2: don't we don't have that experience here. These, these deer do not get hunted from tree stands very often, and I, I've had them working in climbers. I've had them come up and eat the lichen that I knocked off of the tree as i was climbing i mean these, these deer i could have dropped an arrow on
0: i don't know that, never look up yeah see i've never experienced that because i've always hunted here in the southeast where the majority of white-tailed deer are hunted from above so they're always looking up yeah
2: wow that that would be very different that, that's pretty interesting
0: it's it's what they get used to uh, because they have to. It's a it's a defense mechanism.
2: Mhm. Oh, well, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. But it, it's just it, that's something I've never experienced.
0: And you know we don't really have the luxury of being able to do spot and stalk. I mean, Tyke, you spent time here in the southeast. You can attest to the fact that you can't really spot very far.
1: No. Yeah. You're not gonna spot anything for. And, and if you do spot, it's going to be down a fire break or a road or something like that. And and by the time you get over there to start stalking, it's so dense, you can't be able to find it again anyway.
0: Well, even at that, most of the time when you spot something, you don't really need to stalk it. You can just shoot it from where you spotted it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, uh, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for that spot and stalk. You,
0: you just you look and you say, "Whoa, 200 yards. All right, I know where I need to aim for that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a different ballgame. I'm not sure that it's entirely different. We, we have a lot of country that that is what you get here. So we kind of experienced that. But for some reason, tree stand hunting in California just has not become widely adopted yet. And I'm not really sure why, because I personally feel it's very effective. Um, but there's for some reason because these aren't whitetail people don't gravitate
0: towards that and i can't really give you a reason why i don't know why you wouldn't want to it's a great place to take a nap
2: well i've spent several days in a tree stand and i pretty much thought all of them were terrible for some reason Uh, it's cold you know, you gotta <laughs> you gotta suffer through it. If if you're out if you're out still hunting or something, at least you can walk up a hill and get warmed up. But when you're tree standing, on, you better have some patience and some resilience.
0: That's why they make things that we use here in the southeast. Uh, it's called a heater bodysuit, and that joker is like a sleeping bag with a hood on it. Like a not like a typical mummy bag, it's a square sleeping bag with a hood on it, and it has a zipper on the inside. You climb up in the tree and zip yourself up in that joker, and you're you're toasty. Now the only thing is, is they are very expensive. I do not own one. I just sit there and shiver when it does get kind of cold. It doesn't really get that cold down here, but it can get. It, you can have some mornings in the teens with the wind blowing
3: yeah
2: I, I know this isn't necessarily related to our podcast topic, but but tell me about when you're in that stand and you're sitting there and, and you've gotten hours passed already,
3: do you ever start to think there's no possible way that a
2: deer is gonna walk through here, even though you've done all your research ahead of time that suggests a deer could walk through there?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It happens. Uh, and I'll climb up in a tree stand. <clears throat> One of my things I like to do is I'll, I'll read a book. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. So I'll bring a book with me and I'll read a book or I'll sit there and watch. And a lot of times, <clears throat> I'm sure a book, just like a cell phone, and a cell phone saved a whole lot more deer than a book has. But a cell phone has saved the lives of many of Boone and Crockett Bucks because people aren't paying attention. But I've also sat places where I didn't need to really pay attention because there's no way a deer wasn't going to come in without making a bunch of racket.
2: Well, yeah. And it's, yeah, they make a, a whole bunch of noise.
0: It's It's hard to believe those things can walk anywhere without being found. Well, I'll tell you. When you get down here in the southeast, and you get on in the early winter, you have you get le- good leave coverage on the ground, and then you get a rain, a good rain. They can come through that and never make, a, never make a sound. No. I've had days, especially in the pines, and a good pine thicket, the pine needles already don't make much noise. And when they're good and wet, and everything's fluffy and just moist you they don't they don't make a noise i have literally looked up from my book and had a deer standing at 10 feet in front of me in a ground blind and never knew it was there and it was just staring at me and at that point i was like well nothing i can do about that but and i'm i'm honestly amazed at how quiet deer are but when you sit here One of the things that I've keyed into being a stand hunter versus a, you know, spot and stalk is the sound of a deer coming through the woods. Because you're listening to a plethora of sounds in the tree stand. There's squirrels on the ground, possums, raccoons, everything, right? But a deer has a specific cadence to it as it walks. And after you've heard it enough times, you start to realize what that sounds like. Now, sometimes a squirrel will match it pretty well. And it'll get your attention. But a lot of times, if you're really listening, you can hear that step, 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 stop. Mm-hmm. Step, no, I was to say stop. that. Yeah,
2: that's funny.
0: Yeah. You key in on those things, and then you, you start to notice that stuff. But we use a lot of, we use food plots down here. We create food sources. So that's how we, we tend to draw deer where we want them to go. Yeah. And a lot of trail cam research, saying these deer are showing up at this time on these specific days. You're using patterning techniques to find out, figure out where they're going to be, so on and so forth. But even that's not a guarantee. You never know.
2: Sure. Yeah. 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 These deer, they act like it's a matter of life and death. I can't figure out why they they got to make it such a big deal. But
0: I mean, it kind of is a matter of life and death. <laughs> so uh,
1: yeah they're really overreacting about it I
2: think. <laughs> like come on I'm, I'm just trying to get a little
3: meat in my freezer this is, this is not like a
2: serious deal here but they act like it's the end of their world if I find them
0: maybe you should just try uh talking to them asking them for a back strap or two <laughs> they can keep the rest you just want the back straps
2: they don't really use them
0: yeah, that's why they're so tender.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, we can reason with them, I think. You might have a hard
0: time uh, talking one out of that neck meat for stew meat, but, you know, if you're a smooth well, talker. Well, you know,
2: my, my favorite cut is those shanks, and I think they'd have a hard time getting around without them.
0: <laughs> yeah, you just, you know, lay it up with some good medication. It'll be all right. Time heals all wounds, right? so did the limited training time this is really more for tyke but did the limited training time you have prove sufficient throughout your trip uh
1: sufficient (laughs) yes i made it i didn't die i did all the walking i had to was i uh was i sucking wind most of the most of the time in and out, yes, I, I definitely was, and I could, I would have definitely appreciated a little more time to get ready for it. But um, it was definitely sufficient. I went in, I had a good time. Uh, you know, I didn't regret the decision going there at all. Uh, and and then once I was in there and we were doing our our day hunts and stuff like that, it was I got around doing that with with really no problem at all. Uh, just the the hike in and the hike out was pretty brutal. And then my bad knees, you know, going. Coming down, my knees were all wobbly because they were, those knee tendons and stuff were so pretty stretched out by the time I made it down to the bottom. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, if, you, if you've if you got a month, and the other thing is they, you know, they closed all the forbs here, and so I thought, well, we're not going, and so I stopped getting ready, and so that really cut my training time out about a week. I, I lost a week of that time that I probably could have just kept going because I thought we weren't going to be able to go. So uh, um, yeah, yeah, it was enough. But you know, if you're something you're thinking about doing, you maybe give give it, well, yourself a little more time to get ready and and things like that.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad they opened the forest back up because that would have made for a really, really, really boring part two.
1: <laughs> yeah, we could have finished. We could have tied a bow on that one about a half an hour ago.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, Excluding the spending more time in your training, uh, what was something you would have done you, you would do differently for next time?
1: Uh, I think one big thing that I, I was kind of nervous about the entire time uh, was my load. I, I didn't get a really good load worked up that I, I had a lot of faith in. Out past about 100 yards and I didn't really have a chance to test it though either and so it's kind of one of those things that uh, I wish I would have had a little more time to get that load worked up uh, for the rifle that I was using to, to make sure it'd be a little bit you know I want something that we, we had possibilities where we could have seen something and had a shot out about 300 yards and I just didn't trust my round to do that. Um, and so that kind of limited me on what I would have been willing to – shots I would have been willing to take. And especially in an environment where you're seeing nothing, uh, if I saw something out there that far, I'd have to pass on it because I didn't know the gun was going to do it. would have been uh, pretty – yeah, it would have been heartbreaking.
0: And you're talking about the, the load – just to clarify, you're talking about the load for your, your rifle round itself.
1: Yeah, the, the cartridge
0: and that is something we still have yet to come back and touch on after our multi-part series. Is to jump back into an entire reloading. Well, yeah, it. I mean, uh, I think I think uh, we can go back
1: and we can touch on that as I maybe go through load development on this rifle after season or something, and we can, you know, just take notes and do
0: a do a pretty good load development and reloading podcast or something on that. So, what do you? What about you, Scott?
2: Well, I think that. Moving forward, even for a, a short duration trip like this, that we were on, I, I didn't have enough spots, that to, I didn't have enough plans moving through them to where I felt like I had covered enough ground to, to really believe that there wasn't any animals or legal bucks in there. I, I think that there were in, in relative close proximity to us and if I had had more spots to try, I would have been able to find those animals somewhere. We, I, I have a belief that,
3: that these does and fawns tend to take over a little area.
2: And, and the bucks, they're, they're not really trying to be daddies. They, they really want to try and get somewhere where they're away from those animals, especially the older age class bucks and, and bigger bucks. So I think having more ground that I had planned to hunt would have provided us more locations. We kind of we kind of went through some areas and, and saw does and didn't really find what we were looking for there. And I started writing them off pretty quickly, but I didn't have more options planned out ahead of time. So I was kind of making it up on the fly and I would have liked to have been able to go and try and hit some other spots. Cause when I saw all those all the does and all the fawns, I started thinking we're in the wrong spot. We need to go somewhere. But I didn't have an accurate, I didn't have a plan CD and F to to go, let's go hit this place, let's go hit that place and see if we can drum up where these bucks are because I don't think that they're often far, but they're also not using the same ridges and watering
0: holes that those does and fawns are. So... Of all the training you guys did leading up to this, what was, where do you think you could have spent less time? What what was something that proved to be less valuable than the other areas you spent your time in?
1: Mm, I don't, I don't know that I I really have anything. Um, I I mean, I I didn't give myself enough time, and so I I knew wind was going to be. I mean my lung capacity was going to be an issue for me. And it ended up being something of an issue, not necessarily hunting, but going in and out was kind of one of those things. But uh, yeah, if if anything, I would have done a little bit more of that before I could go. I can't think of anything where I would want to spend less, less time. Uh, I mean, I was, I was kind of concerned that I spent too much time worrying about getting my hands on a map of the area and stuff. But I ended up using it quite a bit when we were actually up there because it was it was pretty easy to just to pull that map out and go okay we're here let's go look at this area. Uh, they're just having that and the compass and all that didn't really come into play too much, but but definitely just having that kind of terrain map where you can look and you know, follow contours and say oh well, let's go over this little hill and see what's down on that bowl on that side and and so that made it pretty fast to try and plan things when we were already you know out out on a walk. Um, but, yeah, I can't think of anything where I would have spent less time.
0: So, what about you, Scott? Uh,
2: well, I was really hoping Tyke would have something here. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, what, what is it that you're going to learn ahead of time or do for yourself ahead of time that you're going to say, like, it would, it would be kind of a stretch for a lot of things for me to say, oh, man, I wish I hadn't, but... Uh, I guess maybe here I could say I wish I spent less time uh, shooting because I never needed to take a shot. Maybe I could have. Maybe I could have spent that time exercising
3: and and uh, gaining a little bit more physical endurance and and not had to suffer at all.
0: <laughs> yes. See, yeah, I guess we could
1: have just not taken a gun too. That
2: would have been. Yes, fun. I mean, next time I'm taking a rifle.
0: See, and y'all, in the last episode, that was the most essential piece of gear you had, and you didn't even need it.
3: <laughs> i kind of left my binos at
2: home because i never had to <laughs> i don't know it, it, this one is a tough question for me to give you a, a helpful answer on
0: But well, that's okay i mean you know that just speaks to the fact that you to an extent had your your training plan and regiment pretty much dialed in and and you know At this point in your lives, I would expect you should probably know what you're doing to some degree.
1: Yeah, for for me, it's a little bit weird to, to backpack in somewhere and basically live off what I could carry in there. That was kind of a new experience. I know we did a little bit of it in the Army, but we had chow basically delivered. If not the next day, then we might have to go one day. You know, we might have to carry... Three MREs or something like that to be able to make it through one day or a day and a half. Uh, but we weren't worried about food and water because that stuff's delivered. Uh, in this situation, water is a major concern, and so there were things I had no idea how it was going to work. And then you know once you once you see it, and then having Scott there that had done it before is going, yeah, we, we'll take care of water. Don't worry about that. Um, you know that made it just it, it made a everything a lot clearer and stuff like that to to see how it all works and you know i would be willing to go for a longer period of time at on another hunt like this because uh, it kind of gave me an idea of what to expect once you once you get over the over the hill and you got something you're setting up camp off your back and things like that
0: so before i get into this next question i want to clarify for the people that are listening to this The answer to this question is not the end-all be-all. And this is really going to be specific to the area that Scott and Pike hunted in and the type of terrain they faced. And there's a lot of factors that can play into this. Um, So, and and I'm going to ask you, what's something that you brought that you could have left behind to lighten your load? And I say all that before the question because... Just because you think you could have left it behind doesn't mean somebody else could.
1: Yeah, I'm going to think about something that I took I didn't need. I, 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 took, I took long underwear. <laughs> so I, I took long underwear. I ended up not needing that. Um, a rifle. <laughs> Cleaning kit, binoculars. Uh, no, so I, I think, yeah, like just uh, a lot of that stuff. Though I think depends on the weather and, and things like that. I ended up using, I think, most of the stuff that I I took along with me, and uh, I could probably, you know, I know we've talked about it before, but you have, you know, light quality and inexpensive, but you get to pick two of those, and so some of the stuff I ended up with were kind of. Heavier than they needed to be. Uh, and, but I wasn't going to go spend a bunch of money on something I wasn't sure I was going to keep after. Right. And so I, you know, I can't think of anything. I, I took extra, uh, I took extra water uh, vessels for storage on camp water. And in this particular trip, it wasn't necessary because we had a source of water that was 30 yards from where we were camping. And so it wasn't that important but um, yeah gosh I can't I can't
2: think of too much that that I took I would have left left behind
0: how about you Scott
2: yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as, as Tyke on this one I one of the things that I brought that I didn't that we ended up actually not needing was water vessels now I, I did that coming off of the heels of a trip that I wish that I would have had more water vessels because it, the water situation was far more d- dire there. But I, I've, I've been doing this long enough to wear my kids pretty trimmed down, and so I, I kind of make decisions. I, I've Over the time of, of coming back and opening up my pack and seeing what did I not ever use, goodbye and then until I suffer from not having that it's not coming with me again so I've trimmed this down quite a bit and I I go pretty light uh, in most cases unless I'm I'm trying to unless I'm willingly increasing weight just for luxuries that I know I want to have like like eating uh, eggs over easy or something like that that's something that I'll make a sacrifice I'll wait for but I don't bring in really too many unnecessary items anymore. I did I did bring in some thermals on this trip, and they weren't necessary, but I don't think I would leave them because on the on the next one, they could be very necessary. So I can't think of anything in my pack that I could say 100%, this is not needed, I don't need to bring it, and so it's, it's goodbye, cut out. I've, I've just been doing it long enough to wear I'm kind of out of those things. I I have in the fast, and I've already refined it down far enough to to where pretty much everything in my backpack uh, aside from my my kill kit and stuff that I would need for taking care of an animal, which obviously I can't get rid of. I I put my hands on and used everything in there. Oh, oh, I know something. You know what? I brought a tripod. And... (laughs) And I on this hunt I never had an occasion to use a tripod. So I packed that thing all over the place up there and never pulled it out of my backpack. And it's something that is not gonna go away because in a lot of hunts I use that tripod more than I use any other piece of gear that I have. So uh, moving forward if if you haven't if you're going on a spot spot and stock hunt and you don't have a tripod you should and if you never use it, then you went to the wrong place for where you need a tripod. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Scott, what are some of those things you've eliminated from your pack over time?
2: Uh, I'm, uh, you know, things like I took extra batteries for things that I didn't need extra batteries for. Uh, you know, if you have a... If you have a fire starting method, you don't need having an extra fire starting method. I still do. But you don't need two or three extra fire starting methods. The BIC lighter is pretty reliable. The ferro rod is pretty reliable. Do we need to add like three or four packs of waterproof matches, extra BIC lighters, extra ferro rods? No, that kind of stuff can go away. Uh, I don't feel like I need to carry a fishing kit anymore. More. I don't feel like I need to carry extra pots and pans or things to clean my pots and pans because I've learned over time a little bit of water in your pots and pans. So to be clear, I carry two. I carry a, a small pot and a large pot, and they nest together. I use a stove with them. I don't need to bring a bunch of soap or cleaning stuff because I'm gonna sink either way. Sometimes on the long trips, I like to take bass in the creek, so I bring a little piece of soap. But I don't bring a whole lot of of uh, personal hygiene stuff because it, I just find that when you're back there, it just doesn't matter. You play the wind, you stink. That's just the way it goes. So um, I don't. I used to take extra, uh, so I don't bring stuff for cleaning cleaning my pots and pans because if I have water, I just add it in to the pot after i'm done cooking i boil it i, I throw it out i take a uh, paper towel and i wipe the pot out and, and it's good enough you can't you can't taste that it was dirty when you when you started cooking it again later
0: well that's just extra um, flavor for the next meal
2: yeah it just adds a few calories to your next meal just, all the parts you wait wasted just come back to your come back to your body so and then things like clothes Not everybody's gonna be able to get away with this, but I bring one pair of socks whether I'm going for Three days or I'm going for ten days. I Plan on wearing one pair of socks now if I know it's gonna get cold I'll throw in another pair that I only sleep in and keep them completely dry and Free of sweat to keep me warm in my sleeping bag but I'm not changing my socks. I'm not doing anything. My feet sink at the end of the trip. But a good pair of wool socks will get you through a trip. So I abandoned a lot of that stuff. Uh, If I abandoned rain gear a long time ago because a lot of times, unless I know it's going to be raining like the whole trip, I'm not going to bring it. If I'm expecting a few hours of rain a day, I'll just – kick up under something and get dried out or a lot of times I'll have time to dry out so it's, it's kind of situational but there's a lot of stuff that I brought as just in case items initially and now I, I have no interest in carrying the weight because even when I brought those items and I got into those situations I didn't want to deal with pulling that gear out and using it and I figured out how to get through it without that gear and so I I kind of kicked it out so that that kind of stuff it was yeah I think I think one of the things that helped
1: me kind of pair pair this pack down before we went to as I've you know I've I've done a lot of bag carrying and things like that and I just kind of going through this I, I made up a packing list and I laid everything out and then as we got closer and the weather was becoming more reliable and all that I was able to cut you know a lot of that if it was going to be You know if we're gonna be waking up in the teens and highs in the 40s i may have taken an extra uh layer or something like that to to try and stay a little bit more a little bit warmer but uh i kind of laid all this stuff out and i was able to really pare a lot of that stuff down just going i'm not gonna need that for three days i can do without this for three days um i did take three pairs of socks i probably could have done it with two um I, you know, just saved one for when I get back. My feet do sweat a lot, and so I got to kind of, you know, be a little more careful about changing my socks and things like that, but um, I was able to kind of switch into a dry pair when we got back for the night, keep my feet warm at night, and then in the morning, you know, I put that pair on, let the other pair kind of air out all day, and then when I got back that night, the other pair were dry, and I'd throw those on and warm back up, and um, I, I easily could have done it with two pairs. Uh, but I took I took the pair I was wearing and then two extras. I could have just taken one, but we're not talking pounds there.
0: <laughs> right. So, and
2: yeah, since since we're on the the sock subject, uh, for all the listeners, if if you are going to try and pare down your your number of socks that you're bringing, one important thing is never sleep in the socks you wore during the day, and.
3: Throughout the day, there's going to be lulls in the hunting. You're not you're not
2: going to pound it all day, every day. And so, if you have a long enough day, where you, mid afternoons you're kind of chilling out, eating some lunch, taking a break, take your boots off, take your socks off, get those socks up on a tree branch in the sun, drying out for you, and they're they're going to get a lot of life back into them after just 30, 40 minutes sitting up there getting a breeze across them, and then at nighttime hang them up don't don't leave them rolled up or sitting there so that they're cold and wet in the morning stretch them out before you go to sleep lay them out if you got a synthetic sleeping bag toss them into the sleeping bag with you and your body will dry them out um, but get, give them some opportunity to get dried out before you put them back on and it's gonna extend their life much longer and buy wool socks.
0: I was going to yeah, say, I I usually, <laughs> when I was in the military and we were packing a packing list, I would bring a pair of socks for about every four days. That's just I would... the opposite. What do you mean four just four the opposite? Four pairs of socks for every day? <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I would bring four pairs of socks for every day.
0: <laughs> yeah I, I would bring about i would bring a, a pair of socks for about every four days and i would pretty much wear and i would change about every four days i would change my t-shirt and my socks and that was it uh and sometimes i even do that but i always made a point throughout every day to find a point to take my boots off take my socks off and let my feet air out and dry back out mm-hmm. to take care of my feet um, and I found that that pretty sufficient for me is to have that pair of socks about every four days and there is nothing that feels greater to me than a fresh pair of socks after about four or five days wearing the same pair of socks
1: <laughs> yeah I would so I would uh I would change my socks maybe twice in a day when we were in the field it depended if if we were walking in rain or you know through marshes or rivers or whatever i would change them a lot more than if it was fair weather uh, but i always just made sure i had extra socks and a lot of uh, t-shirts because you know, those were the things that didn't dry out you know the the acus and stuff they, they dried out really fast but uh, t-shirts and socks didn't and so i <clears throat> always had extras. so when we got back for the night or whatever I could just change out of that and then put my uniform back on, and I was good to go and dry and and warmed up almost instantly.
0: And then of course, you know, uh, nobody wears underwear. Yeah, who does that? That's like, <laughs> so just weird. That's just uncomfortable. <laughs> it's even more uncomfortable when you go. You, you realize you don't wear underwear, and you go to a store to try on clothes, and you're like, "Well, yeah, how about that?" <laughs>
1: But, okay, well i feel sorry for the next guy yeah
0: yeah pretty much too bad these pants don't fit hope they wash them
3: uh,
0: <laughs> uh, but you know I mean I was always in a machine gun turret so that wasn't uh, walking through water was not necessarily my forte oh well,
1: yeah we did that a lot
0: <laughs> so you guys your plan for food and water how did that how did that work out i mean oh, yeah.
1: It was fine. I, I carried in Mountain House meals. Uh, those things suck. I don't care. I mean, <laughs> they just suck. I, you know. I mean. I guess if, if it's all you can pack in there, uh, maybe they're better than other options on the market, and that's why they're so raved over. But really, they suck. Uh, so and then so I packed in a few of those and some some uh, instant oatmeal and and uh, yeah, I had I had plenty. I ate two meals a day like I do here and it kept me just fine. so that's uh, no problems there I just you know like like Scott spoke about a little bit earlier you know take carrying and comfort foods and stuff like that for especially for a three-day trip I think you know if we were able to pack in some some eggs and some other stuff like that that would uh, would just make those meals where you were kind of looking forward to it. Because uh, you can definitely get tired of those uh, stupid freeze-dried meals and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I know Scott was talking about bringing in his own home, his wife's own home cooking. Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so,
2: so uh, when, the, when the forest closed down and I, and I was griping to my wife about how it sounds like deer hunting season's over for me, she decided that it was time to upgrade our dehydrator, and, and the first step in doing that was going to be throwing away our dehydrator. <laughs> so, so then last minute, I, I rounded up a couple Mountain House meals, but I, I didn't do it too badly because I, there was other things that I bring in that I know I'm going to like, I know I'm going to want to eat. Uh, things like uh, the Velveeta shells and cheese. Uh, is, a, is a great backcountry option to me because you don't have to add anything to it. You just squeeze the cheese packet out in there and, and uh, get yourself some of those uh, buffalo chicken packets uh, made by the tuna companies. They, they make uh, chicken that's uh, dredged in buffalo sauce. And, and a combination of those two is pretty, pretty good together, especially if you get some tortillas to wrap it in. And, and make a mac and cheese, buffalo chicken burrito.
0: I, I'm not uh, going to lie, so. Scott. You know, I am nowhere near the backcountry right now, but you are speaking to my soul <laughs> with that meal.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's like I talked about in the in the last podcast. You, you got to take in the food that you're going to want to eat when you're not hungry, because even though you're burning 35 to 5,000 calories a day. You're, nothing sounds good so you gotta, you gotta bring in stuff that, that you would want to eat if you did not feel like eating anything or you were already full because that's the stuff that's gonna get you through and you're gonna be able to, to choke it down or, or even enjoy it going down and, and uh, ha- ha-
0: nourish your body have a good experience so I'm a firm believer in backcountry junk food yeah, I, I'm going to say it. I've already ate dinner, but if you offered me uh, a buffalo chicken mac and cheese burrito right now, I'd probably eat it. <laughs> that, sound, that sounds pretty good, and it's really not that heavy either. Th- those boxes of mac and cheese, they make enough to make probably three plus burritos of that, and those little oh, yeah. buffalo chicken oh, packets yeah. weigh next to nothing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: That, that's, that's kind of a staple on my trips. So I'll... Like, if I'm taking a seven-day trip, that's going to be four days uh, worth of lunches. Uh, Even with my wife's home-cooked meals coming for dinner, uh, sometimes I like having hot lunches. I don't always eat them, and so sometimes it'll be four days in a row, and and other times it'll be uh, broken up. But it just depends on what's going on at lunchtime that day. But those burritos... I. I even get these tortillas that have, uh, green chili infused in the tortilla. Oh. And boy, I'll tell you what, that, that is worth eating anytime.
0: The only problem is, is, uh, getting rid of it later.
2: Well, you gotta be careful on that buffalo chicken because when your stomach is used to like, uh, very mild foods, that buffalo chicken is, is, uh, can be problematic which is why i will not go backpacking without the dude wipes
0: those things are awesome
2: yes i i for one absolutely hate the smell of baby wipes and so a dude wipe really fills in that gap for me in being able to, to clean up all parts of my body and not smell like a baby
0: I can, I can completely understand that.
1: Yeah, while, while we're on food, um, one thing I didn't realize before I went up is those Mountain House meals, the, the ones that are quote-unquote two servings, some of those things are, uh, what, what was it, uh, the chicken noodles or something like that? The first one I had, two servings is 650 calories. And then the biscuits and gravy is like, Five hundred and twenty calories, and you're up there burning three to five thousand calories walking around, and those things are pretty bulky for for the amount of calories that you're going to get out of them. Uh, that was I was a little bit disappointed. I you know, I felt like the you know the MREs they were heavier and stuff like that, but they had uh, I think more calories, about fifteen hundred calories or something, than an MRE.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it sounds like you'd have been better off with an MRE, uh, even just picking and selecting stuff out of it because there's a, a whole lot more calories in MRE than there is in that mountain house meal
1: yeah yeah there was there was not a lot of calories in there and i mean I'm, I'm fine up there for three days you know working like that for just a couple days and and doing that burning a lot of calories i mean i took a lot of calories in around my midsection so i was good there for a while but uh, yeah, there was. I was really working on you know a negative uh, a negative calorie basis. I think almost the entire time we're up there. Uh, yeah, certainly.
3: If you're going off of the
2: mountain houses alone, doing what you need to do on a backcountry hunt, if you were there long enough, you would die. But <laughs> but it, it, you know, a lot of times you end up just losing a few pounds and your body is able to get it from somewhere else but that, that's why i i think uh those mountain house meals are are a terrible solution and there are much better ways of going about doing it for in you know not only just dehydrating your own meals but there, there's a lot of other things that i do to add calories in such as uh we'll take uh like Pita bread, squirt a bunch of uh, pizza sauce on it, mozzarella cheese sticks, and some pepperoni in there. Roll that whole thing up. You make three or four of those for yourself. You're not carrying a whole bunch of weight because it's just protein and cheese and and meat. You're getting a whole bunch more calories, so you're adding these snacks in throughout the day. These, These pizza rolls, they taste delicious. You want to eat them. And... You can you can kind of make yourself like a six meal day, and each one of those giving you three hundred calories plus your your big your big booms of your mac and cheese or whatever, which is I'm, I, God knows how many calories are in mac and cheese, probably in the thousands. So you know if you if you kind of pick your food wisely, you can get through there and. Uh, and not be at such a deficit where you're, where you're feeling like you're constantly hungry or out of energy. Either way, yeah, but, that, I think that's a good, that's
1: good advice too. I, I, like I said, I'm used to eating a couple times a day. But one thing, those mountain houses, they were filling. I felt full, and then I started reading the package, and it was like, this is, I feel way fuller than 600 calories right now, and that was kind of a bad. You know, that was that just felt wrong to me because it's like if I'm going to eat that much, you know, uh, volume of food, I should get more than 600 calories out of it. And, uh, yeah, that was I – was, I was left wanting with those mountain house meals. There's definitely got to be better options, and it would just – that's one thing that I could probably put into if I had a little more time to plan uh, type of uh, section on this would be to, to figure out some better way to get calories and protein. Uh, while uh, while I'm up there Um, I I did I did take a bottle of Tabasco and that fixes everything so um, (laughs) you know you just whatever you're eating if you put enough Tabasco in it it's either going to taste like what you're eating with Tabasco or just Tabasco and and you can't really go wrong there but again same problem with the dude wipes you're going to make sure you got enough of them because uh, that can cause problems you know later
3: on so
0: You know, they. I've heard the saying in Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. But it's more true to say life is like a jar of jalapenos because what you eat today could burn your ass tomorrow. (laughs) And I'm going to go ahead and say this, and you can send me your hate mail all you want. uh, But if you have packed enough mountain house to survive for an extended period of time in the back country to starve to death and you can't kill something you probably should just be a vegetarian
3: <laughs> I,
1: I do agree with that and that was the same thought i had where but yeah i get it if you weren't out hunting and you were backpacking and trying to survive on mountain houses you could you could go long enough you'd die because they're just not doing it
0: But at that point, you know, if if you're looking at starving to death and and dying of, you know, calories in, calories out, your body just shutting down and you can't kill something, just go vegetarian. Eat the plants around you.
2: Well, you know, I I think to Ty's point, if you are going backpacking without hunting and... You're just walking places. You're already a vegetarian, so. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say what I hope for here, but we'll just leave it at that.
0: Let me say this if I was out backpacking and I didn't have a rifle, I could still easily kill a possum with my bare hands. <laughs> In order not to die.
1: Yeah, but the distinction is that you would not go backpacking without a rifle.
0: I would not go backpacking without a firearm of some sort.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the difference that I'm, I'm. That's the distinction we're trying to draw here is that people that backpack are just, uh, just nut eaters anyway, so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I get it. You and, care. you yeah. know, we. To kind of get off topic a little bit, there, there's been a lot of states that are taking up the. Uh, they're taking up saying that if you're going to use state lands and, and federal lands within the state, you have to have a hunting license or you have to purchase another license similar to that to use those. And people are getting upset. Well, I think that's only fair uh, because, you know, hunters and outdoorsmen and fishermen are paying into those state lands and people who are just going out there to bird watch and backpack and things of that nature are getting a free ride. And it's not fair. Yeah. It's not it's like fair to the conservation drivers. effort.
2: Uh, you're talking about Pittman-Robertson, right?
0: Oh, yes. we. I mean, we did a whole episode on the Pittman-Robertson, Dingle-Johnson, uh, and Dingle-Johnson acts. Um, but there's a lot of states that are switching towards forcing people who aren't hunting in order to use those backcountry areas for backpacking or mountain biking or whatever to themselves purchase a hunting license to be able to legally access those. Because those hunting license funds are going back to to paying for that.
3: Yeah. Oh,
2: that sounds wonderful.
0: And I agree with it 100%. No freeloaders.
1: Yeah, they're like the Tesla drivers that don't pay gas tax and drive around on all the roads. Right. Well, you realize, Todd,
3: they're reducing the carbon emissions by making... Coal-fired and
2: nuclear plants recharge. <laughs> recharge their vehicles for them. Yeah, I've, uh, seen,
0: I've I, seen the mines where they get those. Yeah, the, so let's not even get into the, the mines where they get the, yeah. the batteries from.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, those toxic waste pools in China, those are not to concern us U.S. citizens. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I didn't think about
3: that.
0: All right, now we've gone deep down a rabbit hole. Let's turn around before we get any deeper. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you guys had some planned routes out. Did you guys follow those those routes, or did that you stray far away from those?
1: Yeah, well, we were we were on a trail most of the way in, and so we just stayed on that trail, and then. Uh, I think our, our initial plan, when we got there, the, the first morning we went and hunted, we went we went ahead and, and hit that route that that Scott had in mind, that uh, that one area we were going to hunt. We went ahead and did that, and then kind of in that, we were, you know, we talked a little bit after that and, and uh, tried to figure out somewhere else we could go. We could go look, and so we once we got there, we did follow the planned routes that we had and then once we got there we kind of uh, adapted and then maybe went and looked at some other spots uh, but yeah i think initially we we definitely uh, f- followed those routes in and out for sure and then uh that that first hunt i think was basically the only plan we had was to hunt that first morning and then figure it out
0: so before you guys went on this hunt the woods were quite literally on fire Um, but how did how did your weather turn out I mean we talked to this several weeks prior to going and you were expecting maybe some colder days but how did it come out in the end did it play a factor in your hunt
1: yeah I think I think we had what lows lows in the high 30s low 40s and highs in the 70s and it was it was gorgeous weather it it was uh you couldn't have asked for better weather as far
2: as just enjoying the day yeah i could i could have certainly asked for better better weather in in terms of hunting conditions but oh yeah we had very nice uh walking around weather never getting hot never really getting cold just you know kind of put on a puffy jacket at at nighttime to stay warm, but we had nothing that was going to promote deer movement or uh, anything that was going to be advantageous. The last day we were in there, we did get some wind. that that gave us some cover for for still hunting, which was helpful. We did see more animals that day, I think, than any other day. But uh, the weather was definitely not not a factor in not a factor in what in our success in any way or, or our comfort I mean we're, we were just comfortable and easy going but I would have liked to see a little bit more weather as far as success goes
0: so I tell you you talk about the puffy jacket that was something that I purchased. Man, that was within the last two years that I actually purchased my first puffy jacket, but that down or fake down jacket has changed the way I view warm clothing.
2: Well, careful now, this is this is getting on to a later topic, I think.
0: I, I'm just saying, <laughs> if you don't own one, that is that is the lightest easily the lightest weight jacket I own, What but one of the warmest jackets I own.
2: Well, yeah, I was about to talk about the puffy jackets on a later question. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I agree with you. Do not go without a puffy jacket any longer. (laughs) (laughs) That might come up later, ladies and gentlemen.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I, I was trying to kind of blend it in here.
0: Uh, gently, but yes. Yes, so, do not go without a puffy. And that, I mean, even here in the southeast where I'm not walking everywhere, I've had mornings where I've literally, it, it, it was, the one that sticks out to me the most is I had a morning where I went out to hunt. It was 28 degrees that morning with a blowing wind. Um, a steady 10 mile an hour wind. I put on a thin jacket and my puffy jacket and i never once felt cold
2: so so being a californian i'd have to say like 28 degrees that is like the real deal cold so i mean if it's 28 degrees it's
3: time to cuddle up with a with a glass of cider and start <laughs>
2: Start, start drinking you some warm apple cider and put on a good movie because 28 degrees—that is no man's land.
0: When, uh, when it hits 28 degrees down here in Florida and, jo- and you know South Georgia, <clears throat> people start buying milk. All right, if that's in the forecast, they're buying milk and water. <laughs>
2: When it gets down to the 50s here, we're starting to get a little shaky on whether or not we ought to stay home in case of blizzards.
0: Well, when it hits 50 here, you got people in North Face jackets with the fur on the hood.
2: (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, we're living in similar climates. Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's always sunny in California, Scott. You know that. We just surf all day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what are some of the extreme weather shifts you guys see out there?
3: I,
2: I think in my lifetime, the lows have been 16, which, which is basically shut down the schools, shut down the works. Like, everybody just better keep it inside because... If you walk outside, you might freeze to death.
3: <laughs> no, they, they'll, they'll start, in California, they'll start having like, oh, the buses can't run because
2: there might be black ice. So, yeah, we're, we're closing it down. I know I know other places have severe weather, but here, we don't deal with that. So
0: you see, you know, I think the lowest I have ever seen here in Florida was probably 25 degrees. And that was for a total of about 20 minutes at sunrise.
2: Well, I believe you were shivering
0: I was loving when that it. happened. I was loving it. I love cold weather. I, I am not a fan of the heat. Uh, I am a firm believer of I can put on more layers to get warm. But I cannot walk around outside butt-naked, because right, that's against the law, so let's make it cold out.
2: Yeah, well, I, I, I've come from the same camp, except when it gets below like 42, uh, then it's, it's getting pretty rough. So, it, here where I live, it is the hottest place in California. They, they, they say it's Death Valley, and I argue that they're wrong and the buzzards know that and so they all hang out here because some they're just waiting for everything to die um so the outside during the summer here is unbearable but at least the winters here they get down into about the 30s which is far too cold to be going out in that but uh, maybe if you bundle up in a parka, you'd be you'd survive your trip to your to your vehicle.
0: And you see, you know, when I was at Campbell, <coughs> we had a, a record snowfall one year of a whopping twenty six inches, and uh, we sat outside all day with a with a case of beer in the snow, and snowboarded into retention pond as best you could in 26 inches of snow
2: what it, uh, what is this s word you're using yeah right so, uh, <laughs> no all right let's move on this is gonna take forever
0: <laughs> so did you guys get a chance to to mess with your comms how did that work out <laughs>
2: well
1: it worked out pretty well until uh scott forgot his radio at home I just left mine. I wasn't packing one in to talk to this guy. I've
0: been there. Been there. (laughs) Uh, Basically,
1: our comms plan went like this Uh, We're going to go down here and we'll meet here. See you in in 10 hours. And if I don't see you in 10 hours, I'll be at camp. It's like, okay. So that was basically the comms plan. And it worked well.
0: So you guys didn't hunt together, you kind of divided and conquered the whole thing?
1: Well, we we, uh, worked in tandem so we were we were basically like we're going to work this timber patch uh we basically we didn't have a uh, line of sight and we kind of just had an ending point and kind of a meet up spot and if you know a certain time rolled around then we just head back uh head back to camp
2: <laughs> yeah so the, so the one animal that I did see that that could have been a legal book uh had a uh, tyke silhouetted on the ridge line, and it, and it kind of snuck away or snuck around a group of trees. I was, on this particular stock, I was taking the low road, which ended up in a, in a shorter stalk for me, so I, I ended up getting a little bit ahead of him, but I could see him on the ridge line, and the animal that I was thinking might be a legal buck had had kind of come around behind a tree seeing him and when i looked at it it was directly in line with Tyke's silhouette so there was absolutely no chance that i was going to be able to take a shot at this animal regardless of what it was so i kind of gave up on that i tried to move around and, and see if i could get a different angle at it and ultimately it ended up putting a slip on us through a little a little draw that i couldn't see down into but um other than that when we uh spread out to go on a hunt that was that was very early into our very first hunt when when we spread it out to to do a hunt and and push to a section of timber most of the time we would not be able to see each other and we just set a rendezvous point and if that rendezvous point didn't work out for whatever reason then uh the camp was the ultimate rendezvous point and I, I've been
3: on a lot of hunts that, that that was the solution to
2: communications and so far uh, knock on wood they've all worked out so
0: so what I'm hearing yeah, but, you say Scott is you saw a booner easy booner but tyke was in the way
2: well you know I, I don't know if Boone and crockett if they're Ranking system goes quite high enough for the animal that I saw. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, if, you, if you had remembered it, your radio, you could have told me to move the hell out of the way. It, it, it was such that I couldn't determine the trees from its antlers.
0: <laughs> there we go. Now we're in the right frame of mind.
2: <laughs> so so to, to clarify for the listeners... Here in California, uh, Boone and Crockett is something that we've barely ever heard of. Because the deer that we shoot is the very first one
1: that has the legal fork. (laughs) Yeah, that's
2: the hair trigger. You see hair and you pull the trigger. Because if you try and wait... Then you will be trying to, to choke down a tag that is made completely out of plastic. And no matter how you cook it, it's still the same piece of plastic and it's about four yards long. It is. It's a big scroll. We call it the deer scroll. I mean you can you can pull this tag out and stick it up next to your head. I'm six foot. And the thing will touch the ground. And so tag soup is very unpleasurable here and so when you see a deer that is legal and i'm talking about you can hang a ring on that fork you kill that sucker (laughs) (laughs) because that will be the last one you see the whole season
0: sounds a lot like uh you know public grounds here in florida because a lot of guys are that's the way you know I've, I've run a few uh i've gone and run dogs for deer and that was the thing back back when i was doing it um it was you know you had to have a spike that was five inches and if that if that horn protruded over top of the ear you better be pulling the trigger
2: yeah um yeah absolutely i'm a meat hunter you know my, my family values is having deer meat in the freezer uh, if i can pull it off and so, if that deer can become meat legally, it
3: is going to. Uh, I don't wait. Uh, I'm not, I'm, my trophy is a
2: stack of meat in the freezer. So, that that's how I roll here. And, and if if you're not doing that here, you're going to be going hungry for a, quite a few years.
0: And that's yeah, the thing, most, you know. Like that's one a th- is a mount and you don't
2: care about eating, but. If all you want to mount, you better count on one every eight years. It would, yeah, if you want a one to mount, you got to
1: go to Colorado.
3: <laughs>
1: well, yeah, don't hunt here.
0: <laughs> and that's the thing. Uh, yeah. I am lucky enough. To, I, I am my ultimate goal when I go out to hunt whitetail here in the southeast it, is for meat. Um, but I'm lucky enough to hunt primarily in a state. Where I'm allowed to kill does. Uh, so, I'll never give a good doe a pass. She's going to get shot. Yeah. But in yeah. on the same hand, you know, I, I'm letting those smaller bucks walk. I mean, it's the last time I shot a buck was in 2016. And he hangs on the wall. But it's kind of been that way for me for the past since 2010. I think was the first one, one, the one before that, hung on the wall. So I've only killed in that time frame. I've only killed three bucks since 2010. Everything else has been does because I, I I've been blessed to hunt in states where I can harvest does. I mean I hunted in western tennessee for a long time and that was our limit there was three does a day with no limit on the season and then i hunted now i hunt in in south georgia where we have a 10 doe limit for the year i'm not going to eat 10 does or 10 deer it's not going to happen i'm just not going to go through that amount of meat with with four people in my family so i shoot what i can eat or what i assume i can eat and then we uh, we go from there but i just don't shoot those smaller bucks and i i hate the the saying you can't eat the horns um but i understand I mean, too, and...
2: because you know you like shooting everybody likes shooting
0: a buck with big horns right you have that opportunity but in, in california
2: there is no opportunity to shoot does uh it, it's non-existent so you have to shoot the buck that you see that's legal or else you're not going to get any meat at all and and we have an opportunity for two tags here and i think over the last uh 18 years that i've been hunting i've done that twice i've shot two bucks and both of those bucks have been eaten in the same year that
0: i shot them and I, so, we're, we're, we're looking at like three,
3: uh, my family is a family of four, we're looking at three
2: months of red meat out of one animal. And so, if we shoot two of those, we're getting six months of meat out of those. And so, to me, I, I've never been able to develop that. If, if I see a big buck, of course, I'm going to shoot the bigger one instead of the smaller one, because a lot of times, big horns go with big bodies. But, and, and I'm going to be thrilled that I shot a, a buck with bigger horns. But when, when you're in this state and there's a very low likelihood that you're even going to see a buck that is legal to shoot at, that is with a, with a forked horn, that's uh, for you, that's a four point, uh, not counting the eye guards. A three, three point.
0: Okay, so um, let, let's break this sorry. down real quick. In the, in the east, southeast, we count every single point.
2: Okay, so over here we count anything in the, the upper two-thirds of the antler. So an eye guard would not count as a point. And So it has to have two points at least on, on one side. Yes. So it could be a spike on one side with an eye guard. That that is one point. And then on the other side, it could have an eye guard and two points. That is a two by one, and that is a legal buck. So if so, so counting that, if you see a buck that is a two by one, and you pass on it. I would say there's
3: a ninety nine percent chance that you will not get a deer that year. And
0: so another clarification, what you're calling eye guards we generally call brow tines.
2: Okay, yeah, exactly right. So So but in the lower two in the lower one third of the of the antler as it grows out. Right. Yeah. So um, brow tine eye guard in the west we call them eye guards
0: (laughs) so to clarify my stance on you can't eat the horns there are instances where I completely understand shooting the first legal buck that walks out and even in an instance where um you can't where you have the availability to shoot does I'm not going to knock on you for shooting illegal deer Illegal deer is illegal deer is illegal deer is illegal deer. Um, I agree. And as long as it's legal, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. As long as it's legal and it makes you happy, that's all that matters. I personally uh, have enough evidence via photos from trail cameras that tells me don't shoot that six point or. Uh, I get what, a two by two if you don't count the eye guards by your standards. <laughs> uh,
3: that's a fork and horn.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah a, okay. So don't shoot the fork horn.
0: <laughs> don't shoot him. Don't shoot the three by three, because there's there's a what we would call a ten or you would call a four by four by your standards. That's coming around pretty regular, and he is, he has a. 22 inch inside spread he's he's a big buck a big buck yeah that's regularly there so if you pass on those smaller ones you have that opportunity for him to step out but in the meantime you can shoot those does Mm -hmm. uh but what what bothers me the most is when i i see guys in the in the states like georgia and tennessee where you can go on public land and you can kill all those does they go out there and they shoot a button buck And they say, well, you can't eat the horns. I was like, well, there's not much there to eat to begin with. So Yeah, and
2: and I think that that general premise applies here. But the problem is,
3: if you don't shoot that,
2: uh, what is that, a five point by your standards, that's a one by two with eye guards uh then you will not get a deer <laughs> so you better just lower your standards take what you can get if you want to fill fill your freezer if you don't care about filling your freezer and having deer deer meat to eat then go ahead and wait i i commend that
0: and don't um, get me wrong i'll shoot a five point you can ask tyke but i guarantee that five point i shot's shot is the biggest five point tykes ever seen
2: <laughs> so the other thing that's different here is that white-tailed deer grow large. Uh, I call them my guards, you call them brow tines. White-tailed deer grow large bright brow tines, but uh, blacktail and muleys, like a very large brow tine for those is about an inch and a half.
0: Yeah, see, so I've got I've got bucks in don't the house so that why so much have... out here,
2: is because a lot of the whitetail, as far as I've seen on on the YouTube or the television, is that they'll grow those things like five inches high sometimes. Um, out here, most of the deer that you kill will have none,
0: and that's the difference in in a mule deer rack and a in a whitetail rack i mean you can see it's a visible difference i mean i've got a couple of whitetail deer hanging in the house that are easily both both of their brow tines or eye guards are five to six inches long
2: yeah that that would be unheard of
0: and that five point that i shot i had taken tyke down to our our camp in georgia when we were both stationed at at fort campbell and tyke you were hunting what 70 yards away from me maybe and he did not have brow tines or eye guards but he was a very old buck and he had just reached the point where there was more energy devoted to keeping him alive than there was devoted to growing antlers and he was a trophy in and of himself because of his age yeah, and he was nasty, too. Yeah. But I don't care what people say. He tasted just the same as any other deer. Made in a hamburger. Yeah,
1: yeah, made in a hamburger. It was definitely a grizzled little
0: buck, though. So, what was the most challenging part of your trip overall?
1: Not seeing anything.
0: That's understandable.
1: Uh, that I mean it makes, it makes it hard to I don't know I really appreciated the trip and everything it just is kind of when you're not seeing anything it just gets frustrating and you're just like I just want to maybe I don't know hang out and go fishing um, I, I think that was probably the most challenging thing but <clears throat> there's gosh it's hard for me to answer this one uh, beyond that I think the the, the walk-in over the pass and the walk-out were, were definitely difficult and I was sucking wind but challenging? No, I think challenges happen in your mind and it wasn't challenging in that way. It was just like as long as I keep walking I'll get somewhere eventually. Right. And, you know, it's like that's you know, that kind of goes back to army walking. You know, it's like just go somewhere in your brain where it doesn't feel anything and then just walk so like, uh, that was that was definitely the hardest on my body was going in and out but uh it was not hard mentally i i just had a really good time but I, I can't really think of anything that was mentally taxing other than you know maybe the fact we didn't
2: see anything
0: how about you scott
2: yeah, I kind of agree with Tyke on this one. It's it's hard to stay in the game and and keep on hunting whenever you're not seeing any animals that you can pursue. Um, I think, but th- this was a short enough trip that there was not a whole lot of of things that were going to make you want to leave, other than just that that mindset that spending time there is not necessarily going to result in an animal. It's 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 kind of hard to, to, to keep going. Waking up and saying okay, I need to go back out and go hunting. Even though your brain is telling you, okay, when you go back out and go no. hunting, all you're going to do is see the same animals that you saw yesterday and none of them are going to be something you can back out of here. But Um, I've kind of learned to deal with that and because if you stay in the game until the last minute, oftentimes it's that extra effort that gets you to that animal. In this case, it was not, but in other cases that I've had, that that mentality that I just got to keep going, even though I don't think it's going to happen. It is what gets you to the point
1: where you end up with an animal
2: uh, that you're packing out. Yeah, it's I I know, like when you were talking about
1: going in that basin the last day, and the the guys we were with didn't even get up and hunt the last day. They they packed out. Um, but we were talking about going into this basin, and it was not going to be an easy walk there into the basin or out of the basin. And it was like, okay, you know, I just had to. You know, throw my sack over my shoulder and take a walk, but it, it, was, it was kind of one of the things that was hard to get past mentally. I guess was just that we're not gonna see anything, but let's go. Let's go down there. It was kind of uh, it was even more mentally difficult to get over there and then see some other guy walking up out of where we we're going in there too.
3: Yeah, at that, at that point, it was like, oh "Jesus,
1: <laughs> already been some some a hole down
2: here wandering around." Um, but yeah, I mean, that, but that, that I've is, been yeah. on enough yeah. hunts already that that tell me, okay, we have one more chance at this. We have a new plan, and we have a plan that we're seeing good sun. In, in our case, we went into that basin and did a little bit of scouting. Uh, we saw a good sign in there. Uh, I, I pulled this out. I said, Hey, let's, let's do this in the morning when we got the wind, right? And, and everything is going for us. Let's, let's try this again. And this is going to be our best opportunity. And I, I think that it's important to convince yourself whether it's true or not, and in our case, it was not true, but you got to tell yourself, Hey, there's going to be a buck in here just get up there and find him and if you continue to do that to yourself at least some of the time you're gonna be right and it's going to be worth it and nobody's ever gonna get to the to the trailhead on their way home and say boy I'm sure glad that I didn't go walk that basin I'm sure glad I didn't climb up that mountain That is never going to be said at the trailhead. At the trailhead, you're going to say, hey, I'm sure glad we did this because we figured out the animal wasn't in there, and we can go home thinking that we did everything we could to try and get that animal. So, you know, as hard as it is to believe that it's going to happen here or there, you got to remember, what am I going to say at the trailhead? Am I going to say, oh, I saw that timber sand? But it looked too far, so boy, I'm glad I didn't climb that mountain. No, you're gonna say, man, I wish I would have just gone and seen what was in there. So yeah. that—that's one thing. I didn't come out of that hunt
1: thinking that we could have done more. I mean, we—we we kind of covered that in the beginning, you know, when the and the training and the uh, route planning and all that. But I didn't come out to the end. There was if i think if we had more time we could have we could have worked more area but we
2: we were there for 48 hours if that yeah that, that made it very difficult i mean uh, extending that that timeline out we we would have figured out where the animals were but with work and everything else that was going on it it just wasn't practical here for this hunt so you just try and and place your bet, go in there and then uh, work as hard as you can and see what you can do and if it doesn't work out you just got to accept accept what it is yeah i mean I, i i have no uh no
1: regrets about what we did in there and what we didn't do i i feel like we did you know everything conceivable uh in the time we had to be able to get on some legal some legal deer in there and it just didn't didn't come to fruition um this time next year could it could be completely different and the places we're in could just be you know some buck haven where they're in there in hot tub jacuzzis and and just hanging out with the loose tail but this time it wasn't that it was all you know it was all all the old ball and chain walking around in there and so they they just weren't in there, and uh, it, it made it hard. But again, I, I feel like we did what we could, and there was there was no regrets. There were times I know you were like, "Let's go do this," and I was like, uh, "Okay, you know, I really don't want to do that." But as I'm out there walking, I just keep telling myself, yeah, over this rise, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk down in this valley and back up over this ridge, and then that's where that buck's gonna be." Well, no, it's the next yeah. one, you know, and it's just that mental conversation you have with yourself is just like, it's the next one, it'll be there, it's the next one, and you just keep going and going and going until you can't, you know, until you run out of daylight, basically, and then you head back and try again the next
2: day, or or head out, because you're done. Yeah, well, I, I went on a very special trip one time, uh, where I was trying to figure out what I was made of as a hunter, and uh, I just got absolutely beat down day after day after day. And uh, it, leading up to that trip, I asked the Lord to, to show me what it is that I'm made of. And day after day after day, I got beat down. And about uh, five days into that trip, the Lord spoke to me and he told me that I, that. I can do whatever I want to do in those mountains. Just got to keep putting a foot in front of the other. And, and that was like very powerful to me. And and then he went ahead and smacked me down and right after that, and he told me, look, you can do anything with my strength and I offer my strength up to you uh, completely. And if, if what you want to do is come climb these mountains that that would be for me that would be like a man stepping over a grain of dust so you're welcome to come test yourself out here in these mountains anytime you want because this is nothing for my strength and uh but
3: realize it's my strength that you're using here and and once i came to that
2: conclusion you know, climbing up and down those mountains is is no intimidation for me because I'm using the Lord's strength while I'm there. Absolutely. So that's kind of where I landed on that. That was a very powerful trip for me, and so now when I look at these mountains,
3: uh, I just realize
2: where that strength's coming from, and that I got nothing to worry about.
0: So as we draw this down, we're going to get into the tip of the under pressure outdoors tip of the week. And the under pressure outdoors tip of the week is brought to you by the ratchet jacket. The ratchet jacket is, to simplify it, it's a neoprene sleeve that fits over your ratchet strap. It can either be put on the corners to help your ratchet, to keep your ratchet strap from fraying, or you can put it over the metal part of your, the ratchet action part of your ratchet jack your uh, ratchet strap to keep it from destroying your mother-in-law's china cabinet your motorcycle your atv whatever you're going to strap down with it uh they're like extremely budget conscious you you, you're going to get a three pack of these things which means six racket jack ratchet jackets for cheap so get on their website get them on facebook Check them out; it, it, they're great stuff. So to dive into the under pressure outdoors tip of the week, I'll I'll lead us off this week, and I'm gonna say that. Keep in mind that success is not ultimately defined by the kill. Uh, success is can be defined in many different ways. Uh, obviously, as outdoorsmen and hunters in particular, we define we try to define our success by taking game in the field. But on those trips where you're you're not successful, you look at the other things you take away, the camaraderie, the peace and quiet, the time you're spending in the tree stand. I, you know, Scott, with what you just spoke about, I, I have never felt uh, closer to God. Uh, I tell you, when I'm in a tree stand, I am literally 20 feet closer to God himself. Uh, and it's it's powerful. Just in the peace and quiet, watching the sun come up, and taking in those memories, the successes and the memories, not necessarily in the kill. Mhm. Absolutely. I agree. And, I, I, and not agree. only that, it's it, the success
2: comes in that peace, in that tranquility, and that removal from society that you get that allows you to get back to. Uh, get back to God, get back to nature, get back to primitive living where the things that we value in today's society are not causing some kind of uh, oppression on you as an individual. And you're able to push all of that away because none of it matters. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter... Uh, whether your bills are getting paid what what matters at that point is do I have food to eat can I walk up this mountain am I going to get back to camp safely those are the things and it and it's it's one individual problem that you have to to take on at a time and there's nothing better for the human spirit than Being able to realize, this is a problem I have. Can I solve it? And oftentimes the answer for you is going to be yes. And there's nothing else to worry about in those moments. And it it is a real blessing to be able to challenge yourself
1: in that way. Yeah, and, and facing those adversities and things like that and maybe being a little bit afraid and overcoming them bolsters your ability in the future to take you know to, to feel more comfortable when you're out there and and think you know I, oh, I can do without this i can do without that it was it was somewhat grating that one that one uh little spur we'd get up on there scott remember, and the phones would just start buzzing and all that it was like it was almost grating to hear the phone go or start buzzing in my bag and it was just like oh man this is I'm back you know I got all these notifications on there and all that I had the phone with me because I had the OnX on there and I was using that for uh, some navigation and stuff and so um, it would just go off and it was almost grating and it almost brought me down a notch it was just like this was that was terrible I should have just had my phone on airplane so I didn't get any of that stuff while I was up there but uh, I didn't think about it because I didn't think we'd ever see yeah, any cell service but um, yeah, you know all those all those little things that that you don't think that you can overcome, but you go up there with the mindset that no matter what comes your way, you're going to solve that problem and you're going to make it, and you're going to have a good time. Uh, it it just helps you to have more fun in the future. You know, I had a lot of opportunities to test myself in the army, and so this was another one of those opportunities, and I I was able to meet this opportunity almost fearless and with some amount of determination because I had already done so much of that before I ever went. And so I was able to just go, no, I'm just gonna do this and and just go ahead and do it. And then take what may come and it all worked out. You know, just not learning not to let fear paralyze you. That's a a big deal.
2: Yeah, I, I look at these mountains and I think what a blessing from our Lord to give us this opportunity at any time to test ourselves as men. And when you complete those tests or you you make it out, you, you suffer these consequences that you put yourself through and you do not give in to them. What a blessing to be able to experience that feeling uh, any time you want to test yourself and and have that joy of look i went into this i went hard the whole time i didn't give up and i made it through and this was an awesome experience it's it's always terrible until you get into the truck and you start driving home and then you realize boy i wish i was back into that terrible and that feeling to me is such a blessing that we've been given to be able to do that and experience that and test ourselves and say, hey, look, you know what? I I really am. Uh, I really am capable of doing this. And thank you, Lord, for giving me this opportunity to test myself, improve myself, because otherwise we would have no idea what we we're capable of.
0: So, you guys have anything else to add? Scott, I know you were wanted to talk about puffy jackets.
2: <laughs> oh, we're talking about uh, tips of the under pressure tips of the week?
0: Yeah, if you got tips to add, make sure you buy the puffy jacket, whatever you got.
2: <laughs> well, yes, make sure you bring a puffy jacket. Uh, a puffy jacket is an extremely versatile piece of equipment um make sure that when you go out on a hunt you're not wearing it you go out cold um well i shouldn't say you're not wearing it make sure when you leave camp you're going out cold and then because you will warm up while you're walking then you'll just have to take it off when you get there when you get started but Go out cold and uh, you'll warm up, but anytime you you get where you're going, put that puffy on. I recommend a synthetic puffy jacket because it will not be affected by the moisture in the air. And that is the single most versatile piece of equipment in your kit. Uh, You can add a rain jacket on top, add whatever you need on top, but you can use very thin pieces of clothing if you have a puffy. And puffies are lightweight, so go with a puffy. Yeah, that, that's good advice. I, I don't own a puffy,
1: and so I took just a regular uh, Under Armour hunting jacket in. It worked. kept me warm, uh, but heavy, uh, way too heavy to try and pack in somewhere. Those puffy jackets would be a lot lighter. And so, yeah, it might be one of the things i got to look at maybe uh, when the weather starts getting warm and see if I can't find one that's uh, for a good deal. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I made do with what I had. Like I said, I think when we started this thing, I wasn't going to try. I was going to try and do this for very little money and go in there and do that. And I, I did it for as cheap as I, I think I could. Um, so I, I think my tip of the week, I always thought, is, is a sleeping pad. So I always thought that sleeping pads were for ladies and children um, until I had. Uh, a couple of the best night sleeps uh, I've ever had on the ground. Uh, just having something between you and the cold, hard earth makes a huge difference, uh, and and so that's that's a big deal. And I even, you know, I was using Scott's leave, leavings, and so, but it was still, you know, uh, made such a big difference. And so, one of those, I think, uh, essential pieces of kit that you, uh, you're not going to leave out when you pack in anywhere any time of year is going to be something to get you up off the ground and uh, insulate you a little bit there. Uh, it just makes everything, those nights, so much better. So,
2: Yeah, so I got a little bit of experience in the sleeping pads because I've bought a few of them, and I've I finally landed on one that I like. But if if you're going out, and it's summertime, and you think you don't need a high R value, if you're going to buy one, buy something with a high R value so that you can be comfortable. A sleeping pad is not going to make you too warm, so
3: look at a weight versus warmth balance on that
2: R value Pick something with as high of an R value as you're willing to carry in weight and buy the one. I've bought several. I've gotten cold in several. Uh, they're, they're pretty much all comfortable. If, if they're uh, inflatable, not self-inflating, pick, pick one and uh, try and get that, that as high of an R value as you can versus the weight and you'll be very happy with that pad. Um, I've gone through several and, and had to change them because I, I didn't like certain things that came with the lower R values, uh, getting cold on the way up. I ended up in a, in a pad that was more expensive than what I needed to pay for the comfort rating and the reliability. So, uh, Pick and choose, but find one that's going to give you a a good R value for what you're paying and what weight you're carrying, and you'll be much happier sleeping
0: on that. So before we end this this week, I want to talk a little bit about what is upcoming for the podcast. And we are next week starting uh, what is shaping up to be probably a six-week series that's going to be titled "Hunters of a Bygone Era." Um, throughout this series, we're going to interview. We're going to go... We have a a deer dog hunter who's been hunting in the state of Florida, chasing deer with dogs since the 1950s. We have a still hunter who's been doing the same, chasing deer and hogs with a with a recurve bow. We are going to get a gladesman, an original gladesman, who uh, a man who helped map the Everglades Uh, we have a duck hunter from Louisiana who was raised by a market hunter from the early 1900s and still hunts in that same fashion today uh, including making his own cane calls and hunting with a shotgun manufactured in 1902 and we have a fishing guide who is in his 80s and still regularly guides fishing trips on salt water in the state of Florida. And to cap it all off, we are bringing in a retired game warden from around the same area to talk from the lawman's perspective. So this is going to be a great series uh, full of a lot of information from the, the old timers per se. And you'll get a lot of history of the hunting heritage and it should be really fun, uh, so make sure you guys are subscribed and tuned in for that to hear all the great stories that are going to come out of this. Uh, the, the game warden himself has written two books full of stories, so it, it's going to be it's it's going to. I feel like it's going to shape up to be one of our our greatest series we've had so far. Um, Make sure you guys are subscribed to the podcast and that you're giving us that five-star review, giving us some feedback. If you've got any questions for those series of guys that are about to come on this podcast and talk about the days past, make sure you are getting those to us, and we will get them on the air. So until next week, you guys have a great, great week.